all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to, you who believe, now to you who believe the stone is precious, but to those who do not believe. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him, who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now have, you have received mercy. You need to grow up. We've all heard that before. Maybe we've said it. Maybe you've even been on the receiving end of such a comment. Sometimes it's said with laughter when you've been acting goofy. I know my mom says that to my dad quite a bit. <laughs> um, but sometimes it's said with all seriousness when you've been immature. You hear it a lot when you're young. You need to grow up. And it's assumed that everyone knows what that means. But what does it mean? Grow up to be what? There seems to be a certain end in mind, a destination that you're meant to reach. And our world has all kinds of ideas of what it means to grow up. Um, but I'm not going to waste our time this morning exploring all of those. You know, our, for our purposes this morning, it's more important for us to consider what it means for a Christian to grow up. If the Father is raising us in Jesus, if we are children of the Father, who and what is he raising us to be? Peter gives us answers in the first ten verses of chapter 2. Looking at the very first verse, verse 1, starts with, therefore. Now, I, th I know some of you have heard this little ditty kind of before when, it, when you see that word. When you see therefore, you have to ask, what is the therefore, therefore? What it compels you to do is look at what has come previously to understand the point that the author's driving at. So if we go back to chapter 1, and you look at verse 23, you'll notice that Peter declares this truth, saying that those that to, to whom he's writing, the Christians, 
that they have been born again. You and I have been born again. And so in light of that reality, therefore, he then goes on to say, rid yourself of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, all these kind of things. And what you notice as well when, when you go back to the previous verse, you see how, the previous chapter rather, you see how all those things that he's saying we must get rid of are completely opposite to what he says characterizes the Christian, which is love. Christian community is defined by a deep love, a sincere love for one another. And so it cannot abide things like hating each other with malice, deceiving each other, envying each other. All those are kind of different varying forms of, of hatred. I think even hypocrisy, saying you know, one rule applies for you but not for me kind of thing. Now all those things were true of us in our past life. They're characteristic of us. Um, this is just typical to human beings in general. We're selfish. And think about how easy it is for us to just slander people. You know, we've all been in circles where someone starts talking about someone else and, and they start talking bad about them. That's slander. That's not loving. And we love it. It's juicy. We, it's, it, slander is part and partial with gossip. We love to gossip. But we leave all those things behind because we've been born again. We've gained a new birth. And, and Peter runs with this theme. In verse 2, he says, like newborn babies, we ought to crave pure spiritual milk. And when we ask, you know, what is that spiritual milk that we're supposed to be drinking down? Well, it's certainly the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ. I think it also includes the word of the Lord. Um, you go back to verse 25 in chapter 1, we see how it is through the word of the Lord that we gained this new birth. And so as we go to God's word, it is both the origin of our birth and it's also the, the means by which we sustain ourselves and by which we grow up. And then this gets us to this question of what are we growing up to be? Peter says, so that by it, as you're drinking that spiritual milk, so that by it, you may grow up in your salvation. You may grow up in your salvation. What does that mean? What does it mean to grow up, according to Peter? Well, remember, in the previous chapter, he's been talking about how God has called us to be a holy people. That the filling out of our salvation is our transformation into being the holy people that God has called us and created us to be. And as I was going through the first chapter, I, you know, I noted that as it stands today, all of us, we're not perfectly holy in, in our actions. We do stumble. We, we, we sin. But Christ is perfectly holy. And so we're covered by his sacrifice, but we noted how in Hebrews 10 it talks about how we've been perfected all by all for all time in Christ, but we're being sanctified daily, really. So it's this dual reality where in Christ we're perfected, but we're also in this process of being sanctified because this is the purpose that our salvation would kind of grow from the inside out so that we would be 
a truly holy people. Peter says the reason for this, the reason, reason why we should be drinking this milk and growing up is because we have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, how have we tasted that the Lord is good? We've tasted that the Lord is good because we've received that grace and mercy that he offers us through Jesus Christ, whereby we can be forgiven of our sins and we can have a new lease on life. We can leave the malice, the hatred, all of that behind because we are now filled with the love of Christ. And we no longer have to live with fear because we have the hope of Christ of the salvation which is to come, even as we go through various trials, as, as Peter said at the very beginning of this letter. And when Peter is saying this, he's echoing the psalmist. And so there's a long, there's a long kind of history there, because what God is meaning to show us through his word is the reality that true goodness lies in him. It's a goodness that cannot be found anywhere else. Where else do we find grace, mercy, hope, love in this world? We can only find it in God as he's made it available in Jesus Christ. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 34, 8, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. We have taken refuge in in Jesus Christ. And God has given us a new life in Him. And so we get rid of the past. We don't act the way that we did before. We have exchanged the poison of this world for God's milk so that we can grow up, finally. You have been saved to grow up in your salvation. But as we move on into verses 4-6, through six, we see that God doesn't just want to raise us up individually, as individual persons. He wants something even more than this. He wants to raise us up collectively, together, for a glorious purpose. So looking now at verses 4-6. through six. Peter has made it clear that our new birth begins... In Jesus. But now in these verses, he shows us that our renewed purpose also begins in Jesus. And so he kind of moves his analogy. He goes from talking about babies to talking about a building. Kind of a hard shift there, talking about babies, milk, and then he's talking about ar- architecture. And he, all, and he starts with this living stone. This living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. And when he starts talking about this living stone, he's making an allusion to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 118, verses 21 through 24. I will give you thanks, for you answered me. You have become my salvation. He's talking about God here, the Lord. You have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad in it. 
this stone that Peter's talking about and that the psalmist is anticipating is Jesus Christ, the Son of God made man who has become our salvation. Jesus, in the words of Peter here, is chosen and precious to God. And so as we come to Him, we're built on Christ who is chosen and precious so that we might become God's chosen people. So that we might also become precious as we are built upon Christ. We see in verse 5 that that is indeed God's purpose. That just as Christ is this living stone that we might be like him, he says that like living stones, you also, you also like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Now what's really interesting here is, you know, speaking of a spiritual house, what Peter's really talking about is a temple. And so Peter's talking about this, and you could think, okay, maybe this is kind of just kind of a light metaphor he's using. But when we go to the Apostle Paul, we see that he uses this image as well. And so what this tells us is that this is a significant image by which we ought to understand ourselves as Christians, as the church of Jesus. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19-22, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. Something really interesting that I think stands out here is, you know, I, I think if you've been in the faith for a while, you understand that when you believe in Christ, you also receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit dwells within you individually. And that's, that's really great. That's awesome. That produces all kinds of spiritual fruits in your life. You get rid of all the malice. It's replaced with love, patience, kindness, goodness, so on. But what Paul's saying here and what Peter's suggesting as well is that God is building us up collectively. And he's filling us collectively. So that God's spirit doesn't just dwell us individually, but together as the body of Christ. Within each local church, the spirit is working and moving within each congregation. So that's pretty cool. But to what purpose? To what purpose is God making us this this temple, this building? Well, we ask, well, what is the purpose of a temple? The purpose of a temple is to glorify God. And how does one glorify God in a temple? Anyone have an idea of how you typically traditionally did that in a temple? Sacrifices. You offer sacrifices. And so this is our purpose as we've been built up as this temple for God. 
in verse 5, he says that we are being built up into a spiritual household house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now let's take that. Let's take that and we think about what Paul has said. We are no longer foreigners, but we've been joined to Israel, to God's people, and being built up into this temple to God. Everyone's being incorporated into this purpose of offering sacrifices unto God. And we see how this is prophesied in Isaiah, in Isaiah 56, 6 through 7. God says, And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted at my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So hundreds of years previous to Jesus, you have the prophet Isaiah bringing the word of the Lord, saying that his house, his temple, is to be a house of prayer for all nations, and that it's going to be inclusive of those who are not Jewish, Jewish people. Now, for us, we think, okay, you know, very nice. The thing we have to appreciate is that in the first century A.D., Gentiles were not welcome into the temple to offer sacrifices. In fact, when you look to the book of Acts, in Acts 21, the reason that Paul is arrested and he ends up in Rome is not so much that he's preaching the gospel, that is, it's kind of par and partial with him doing the work of the gospel. But the, the particular reason why everyone gets up in arms is because they accuse him of bringing Gentiles into the temple. A big no-no. You're not supposed to let Gentiles into the temple. And so the fact that Peter here is now saying that all of us, and Paul as well, that all of us are being joined together to build this temple is significant in that it's really bringing to fulfillment what God has been designing all along, that all people would be brought together to offer him praise and sacrifice. The priesthood is no longer limited to the Levites, to a particular tribe of Israel, even. So we just talked about how only the Jews could go into the temple. But now we're seeing here, in, as Peter is writing, that even priesthood itself is no longer limited to a particular sect, but that all of us are being called to be priests unto God. All people who are built on Christ. If you believe in Jesus, if you put your faith in him, then God has called you to be a priest. That's your primary occupation, regardless of whatever else you do. I know, you know, traditionally it's been often assumed, like, okay, I, like I'm a pastor, and so um, very often people think, oh, like he's a priest. Well, yeah, I'm a priest, but you're a priest too. My dad, the truck driver, he's a priest. Every Christian, everyone who believes in Jesus has been built upon him in order that we might be priests of God to serve God, 
And we serve God by offering sacrifices. And, and Peter says that the sacrifices that we offer are acceptable to God through Jesus. And, and I think that's really important for us to recognize here before we go any further in talking about what those sacrifices look like. Because these are not sacrifices offered instead of Jesus, as though we could make ourselves acceptable to God on our own. Like, oh God, look at these great sacrifices I'm offering to you. You've really got to acceptable, accept me now. No, not at all. Peter's saying you're only acceptable through Jesus. But now that you're accepted through Jesus, you can now bring sacrifices to God. So what do these sacrifices look like? Well, we look to the epistle to the Romans. We look at the letter to the Hebrews. We see sacrifice characterized for Christians in this way. Paul says in Romans, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So again, notice here, we're not offering sacrifices to gain mercy. We're offering sacrifices because we have received mercy. And the sacrifice we offer is our bodies. Now that sounds weird. Like, I mean, was Paul saying, like, literally like, build an altar and like, throw your body, body in? No. What he's trying to say is like every inch of you, everything that you are, you give to God. That's what we can do now in light of the mercy that we've received in Jesus Christ. We don't have to hold anything back because we're, we are perfectly secure in him. And then in, epistle, in the epistle to the Hebrews, says, again, through Jesus, not through ourselves, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. So yes, speaking and singing and, and praising, that, that's definitely part of the sacrifices that we offer to God. But notice also, it's not just that. In verse 16, it says, And do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So what we're seeing here in Hebrews is really just kind of a breaking down of what Paul is saying when we offer our bodies to God. We're giving all of ourselves, the things that we say, the things that we do, all of our lives is supposed to be an act of sacrifice, an act of worship unto God. And what's radical about this is, is that it's not limited to a particular place or time in which we can offer these sacrifices. That was the trouble before Jesus. Before Jesus, you had to go to the Temple Mount and you had to bring the sacrifice. But now, we can do it at any time, at any place. Jesus says in, in John verses 21 to 23 when he's talking to the woman at the well he tells her believe me a time is coming when you will worship the father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshipers the father seeks in Jesus now we worship in spirit and truth through what we say and in the spirit as we act out 
the good works that God has for us in Jesus Christ. And so that worship begins here in the church. I don't want to diminish that at all. The worship begins here in the church as we are gathered together. This is kind of like the nucleus, the starting point. But it doesn't end here. It goes everywhere that you go. Those are all your opportunities for worship. We then see in, in verse 6 that Peter then says, for in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And in the, the passage that he's alluding to here is from Isaiah 28, 16. And, and, and what he's trying to tell us as Christians is that because we have trusted in this stone, Jesus, this rock upon which we stand, we don't have to have any fear of rejection as we come to God because we are accepted in Jesus Christ. And maybe when you're reading that verse, you have a tough time kind of seeing all that. But I think it's made clear when we go to Paul's words in Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, because he, ref- he makes the same reference that Peter does here to Isaiah. In Romans 10, verses 9 through 11, he says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's our confidence. Our confidence is not in our singing abilities when we worship God or all the good, the, the good things that we try to do. That's not our confidence before God. Our confidence before God is in Jesus Christ. And because we can come before him with this confidence, we're now free to do all these other things without, without fear. We offer sacrifices of joy because of our security in Christ. It's because we are accepted that we can live as God's priests without worry. Peter brings things to an even finer point in verses 7 through 10. He makes it clear here that Belief in Christ, belief in this stone, this precious stone, is decisive. He says that those who don't believe will encounter disaster. And he makes this clear by alluding to a couple of passages from the Old Testament. He, he alludes to Psalm 118, which we've already read, and then also Isaiah 8, which I'll we'll read from here. Isaiah 8, verses 13 through 17. It says, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken they will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instructions among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. 
So what we have here is a prophecy. And it's a prophecy of the rejection of Jesus Christ. And we saw that play out in Jesus' own lifetime of how some, some of the Jews believed in him, but many others rejected him. Uh, and, and I think this, this passage can anticipate even the rejection that Jesus um, receives even, even beyond the Jewish people, but it's especially referring to that. Now, what Peter says here is that those, he says in verse 8, that they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. And when we see that, that which was what they were also destined for, we think, well, did they not have a choice here then? Were they just kind of bound and determined by God to stumble? I don't think so. I don't think that's the meaning here. And I, I think that becomes clear as we pay careful attention to the wording. Because I think initially on the first read, we think that they don't believe because they stumble. But notice carefully, verse 8, they stumble because they disobey the message. It's not that they stumble and so they disbelieve. They stumble because of their disobedience. That's a consequence. It's not the cause. And if you'll recall, when we're thinking about obedience, we're not just thinking about like good acts. Obedience can also be a characterization of faith. We talked about how faith is obedience to the truth. And so because of their disobedience, because they did not have faith, because they did not believe in Jesus, they stumbled. And so stumbling is not the cause of this disbelief. It's the consequence. It's the punishment. Um, for them, Jesus is their downfall. Now, that sounds strange, but you'll recall in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 34, that Simeon, when he sees the infant Jesus, tells Mary this, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. And so, yes, some, some people will accept Christ, but others, when they encounter Christ, will fall. And it's not just a little sort of stumble. We do see that kind of language and meaning used in Scripture where someone stumbles and it's not like a, a sort of stumbling that is totally decisive. There's no coming back from it. But we also see in Scripture the use of the language of stumbling as being indicative of punishment, of disaster. In Psalm 9.3, I've got several verses here from the Old Testament that kind of illustrate this. Um, the psalmist says, My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. Psalm 27. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Isaiah 31. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not gods. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. So when we think about stumbling, I think we have to think of it as their downfall. That those who, who don't believe in Jesus are going to face a downfall. 
because of their unbelief. And so when Peter says in verse 8 that this is also what they were destined for, we can say, yes, God knew that not all would believe. And so because of their unbelief, they are destined to stumble to their destruction. Those who believe have a different destiny. We've already touched on how the fact that those who believe in Christ are made priests of God. And we, we see when we go to the Old Testament that this has been God's design all along. We see this in his design for the people of Israel. In Exodus 19, verses 5-6, through 6, he tells the nation, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. All the whole earth is mine. You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God was speaking to Moses here. So God's intent for Israel was that they were to be a kingdom of priests. Now through Jesus Christ, that design and intent for the people of Israel has now become God's design and intent for us as we have been joined to God's people. Paul talks about this in Romans 4, about how Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, is the one who is the father of all who have faith. And so in Romans 4.16, he says, Therefore the promise comes by faith, that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. So to non-Jewish people. He is the father of us all. And so, by faith in Jesus Christ, this call that was placed upon the people of Israel has now become our calling. And the calling manifests itself in this way. We've been called, it says in verse 9, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We started off this chapter about you know, abandoning the darkness, abandoning the malice, the envy, the slander, all this. We've been called out of that. We've been called into the wonderful light of God. And, and Peter here is making an allusion to Psalm 36. Looking at Psalm 36, verses 7 through 9, it says, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God! People take refuge in the shadow of your ring, wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of light, life. In your light, we see light. That's, what ha- that's, the, that's our experience when we come to Christ. Our eyes are no longer blinded. We see the light. And we drink from the river of delights, which I think kind of, kind of goes back to the idea of drinking spiritual milk. We're brought back to life again. We're able to grow up into what God has created and called us to be. We were once in darkness without mercy. We were godless. But now, Peter says here, you are the people of God. You have received mercy. And so, 
We are priests of God. And I just want to, kind of the last passage I want to look at here, really looks forward to that full reality captured in the vision of Revelation. In Revelation 1 and then in Revelation 5, we see the Apostle John recording this testimony to this reality that we are, in fact, priests of God. He says, To him, Jesus, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. So picking up that, that calling that God put upon the nation of Israel in Exodus, that's now ours. He's made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then when you get to Revelation 5, you have the Lamb of God who was slain, and you have the people of God singing this song in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. And, say, and they sang a new song saying, You, Jesus, are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. So we, God, and we see God's universal intent here to incorporate all people, not just the Jewish people. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. This is who God is raising us to be. When Peter encourages us to crave spiritual milk, to drink down all the grace that God is giving us in Jesus, he's doing that because we need to grow up in our salvation. There's a purpose to our salvation. We are being raised to be God's temple. We are being raised to be God's priests because the Lord of all the universe has decided to make us his home. Just imagine that, that God wants to make us his home. This is difficult for us to imagine, so just think about Jesus. Think about Jesus. What would happen if Jesus came to live in your home? How would your priorities change? How would your daily activities change? Of course, you'd, you'd still need to go to school or to work. But let's suppose Jesus could go with you, too. I imagine you might act different. And there could be a few reasons for that. After all, we tend to act differently just when anyone is around us. But the good reason for acting different would be this. You live differently because you want to honor Him. Now we do await a day when God will be all in all, when God will dwell with us fully and completely, when heaven will come down to earth. But you need to know that God is living within you today. He is living within us, Rockland Community Church, and the church worldwide, today. The Father and the Son have sent the Holy Spirit, and God is dwelling within us. 
We know God's goodness. We have tasted His grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. And so, our service as His priest begins today. That's your calling. I know we, we sometimes really fixate on a lot of the particulars about like what job I'm going to do and this and that and the other, but so often I think we neglect that most basic primary calling. You are a priest. How are you doing in that, being a priest of God? You belong to God now. So now give everything to Him. Lay your body on the altar and say, It's all yours, Lord. All of who I am. Every word you speak. Every action that you take. Every meditation of your heart. You can now give to God. To magnify Him. To glorify Him. To say to the Lord, look at Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank You for giving us this new birth in Jesus Christ for calling out of us out of the darkness and into the light, Father, so that we can leave behind all the hatred and anger, just all the nasty stuff that once captured us, that has captured this world, Father. Thank you, Father, that we can be different. Not because we're great, but because Christ is great. Because... Through Him, by His sacrifice, and by the new life He brings us, we are able to now offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto You. Father, I pray this morning that every single one of us would make it our primary concern our utmost ambition to be your priests. To glorify you with what you've given us. doesn't matter how much or how much, how much we have or how little we have, Father. What you have given each of us, we can give back to you in praise. And so, Father, help us to do that. Help us to see that you have saved us for a purpose, not so that we might serve ourselves, but that so that we may serve and glorify you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed this sermon that I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, just around the bend from Situate Public High School. We invite you to join us in person or virtually this Sunday as we continue our series through 1st and 2nd Peter. 
It's our joy to welcome you into our community.